If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up, please, to Luke chapter 18. We're starting a new chapter today. As we, uh, as we look at chapter 18 of Luke, uh, there's some, some themes that will be familiar to us. We know that prayer has been very important to Luke throughout his gospel. He spent a lot of time preparing us to be good prayers and to realize the importance of prayer in the life of a disciple who follows after Christ. As I was preparing for today's um, sermon, a, a psalm, an older psalm came to mind, one that's not commonly used very often today, but I wanted to share the words of the song with you because of the great impact that they have had on me as I meditate on these words. I love songs of worship that say something important, that don't just make lists of ideas, but that they really develop the thought of what it means to follow after God and to worship Him, to be grateful for Him, and to understand Him in His depth and His mystery. And so let's, let's look at the words of this, this psalm. It was written by uh, George Crowley in uh, the middle of the 1800s. And uh, George writes, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth. Through all its pulses, move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art, and make me love thee as I ought to love. We just sang a song a few moments ago where we, we cried out, Lord, I need you. And before that, we, we sang, uh, I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. And it is a right posture of worship to come before the Lord God. It is right to have the attitude and the thought that we want to worship God but to also realize in humility that we can't do it as well as we need to. We can't do it as well as He deserves us to worship Him. And so we even need to appeal to our God to make us better worshipers to Him, that He would even help us to be humble before Him and to think about Him, to let everything that is true about our God pulse through our veins. We need His help to be meditating on Him and to be responding to Him. The second stanza of this hymn says, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visitant, no opening skies. He's not asking for something miraculous or profound like we would see in Scripture. He's not asking to be visited like a prophet or, or that, uh, that the skies would open up and that God would speak down. He's, he's asking for something simpler. He's saying, but just simply take the dimness of my soul away. And that should be our, our, our goal when we come before the word of the Lord, that God would, through the Spirit, remove the dimness of our veil, that we are weak, that we often are confused and think about God and life in the wrong ways, and that as we come to His word, that is a light unto our feet and a lamp to our path, that He would remove the dimness of confusion from us, that we would see Him better and be able to realize this great God that we have been called after as Christians. And then the third hymn says, Teach me to feel that thou art always nigh or near to me. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear, to check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh, meaning to keep in check this tendency we have to rebel against God and to push back against His desire for our heart. And this last line is what I really want us to grab hold of today. Teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. Today we're going to look at a parable that speaks of persevering in prayer, of, of not giving up hope when it appears as if God has not heard the things that we have cried out to Him. We need God to teach us 
how to not get nervous, to not lose sight of who He is and what He desires for us when our prayers are not answered the way we desire them to be answered. And I, that is the hope of my heart, that today we would le learn the patience of unanswered prayer as we fix our eyes on Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, which is our text for today. So if you've got that, I'd like to read that for us now. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said to, within himself, Though I do not fear God, though I, or nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she will weary me. <clears throat> and then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? <clears throat> we are told right up front in the very first line of this parable what Jesus intended to accomplish by telling it. He tells us his aim, his goal of this parable is twofold. He wants his disciples to learn to never stop praying. He wants them to continue praying, to be regularly about the business of seeking God in communication, sharing with Him the burdens of their heart, asking Him for, for help and for, for strength, confessing sin, acknowledging His great victories. And then secondly, His goal is that the, those believers who are coming to Him continually in prayer would not lose heart. That they would not give up the hope that they have in Christ, but would continually, in faith, believe that this God is all that they need and will provide the things that they lack. <clears throat> now, if you missed the last couple of weeks here at First Family, then let me give you a little bit of context about what we've been learning about because it flows into this new chapter. Chapter 18 doesn't mark a strict break from what we were learning before. It's actually a continuation. As far as we know, Jesus is still preaching to these disciples who had gathered together. We also know there's some Pharisees there with them as well. But this particular teaching is directed at those who call themselves followers after Jesus. We know that the, the subject matter of the last couple of weeks and the verses that precede today's verses was about the kingdom of God. How the kingdom of God has come in a very real sense. Jesus, the king of that kingdom, was standing before them. We experience the kingdom of God even now here on earth but we also have a great expectation for the kingdom that is yet to come. For the fact that God wants to bring more of His kingdom in an exciting way to the Lord and His people. And so we, we have this idea of the kingdom of God being ever before our eyes. And this teaching on prayer has to do with the kingdom of God and our expectation that it will be fulfilled the way that God has said that it will be fulfilled. We should understand this as a preparatory preaching then to help those who follow after Christ not to lose heart when the coming of Jesus, the, the second coming, the fulfillment of that coming kingdom that we have not yet seen does not come as soon as we would like it to come. It has been 
2,000 years since Jesus departed. And yet we still are eagerly awaiting for him to come back for his church and to fulfill the final promises of that kingdom to come. So keep that in mind as we're learning about prayer together, that we're learning about prayer specifically in the context of praying for the return of Jesus. Now this parable is very similar to the parable that Jesus already taught us that Luke records in chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. Maybe you remember that parable. <clears throat> a man has a friend who has come from a great distance away and has shown up in the middle of the night. He was traveling and he just barely made it to the city. The sun's already down and most people are already asleep. And he knocks on the door and says, I've, I've come a far way. Do you have anything to feed me because I'm, I'm impoverished. I'm famished right now. I'm, I'm, I, need, I need food. And this man has no bread. He's got nothing prepared because he didn't know the man was coming. But he cares for his friend and he wants to provide for his needs. And so he, he doesn't want to dishonor his friend. He wants to provide for him. So he gets up and he goes to his neighbor's house and he knocks on the door in the middle of the night. And that neighbor's already asleep and he's in the family bed and they're all tucked in tight and, and warm and comfortable. And he says, yeah, I don't, don't want to give you any bread. I'm already sleeping. I, I'm, you know, what are you knocking on my door for? And this man continues to knock saying, surely you've got a loaf of bread you can spare for my traveling friend. And so eventually that man, because the man persisted in knocking, his neighbor wakes up and he goes and gets the bread and he says, here, take the bread. As much for himself and for his sleeping family as for that guy. And the, the lesson in that parable was, listen, if we persist in prayer, God's going to respond to us. We need to continue at it. We need to be asking the Lord what we need and confessing our weakness before Him. And we need to trust and have faith that He will give us what we need, even if it's through the hands of someone else. And so this particular parable is in, in much the same light. We need to think about them in the same way. It represents a comparison of two judges. The first judge is an earthly judge. He is a, a worldly judge. The text describes this character in two ways. He is a man who does not fear God. He does not fear God. And secondly, he is a man who does not regard man. The word for regard there means that he doesn't even look at man. He doesn't turn his head to him. He doesn't consider the needs of the people over which he is judge. So we get a a pretty clear picture right away that this judge is not a good example to us. He is not a man who honors the Lord and he's not a man who cares for the people who are underneath his charge. These two character traits put the judge, by the way, in direct disobedience to the two greatest commands, don't they? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That's the greatest commandment that man has ever received. And this man has no regard for God. He does not honor God at all. He doesn't fear Him. doesn't give Him the respect that is due to His name. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And this man won't even look at his neighbor. He doesn't care about the needs of the people that he's supposed to be serving. He is a self-centered man. And apparently this man's not ashamed of it because in verse 4 he even describes himself in this very way. So it's not just what critics have heaped upon him, it is how he sees himself. So in essence, the story is about two very different judges. One whose authority is not characterized by either justice or love. And then God, the ultimate judge, who is the epitome of both justice and love. 
And we will see these two judges contrasted. We will see the difference between them as Christ is arguing with us and, and helping us to see that prayer must be a persistent pursuit of our lives. There is a third character in this parable. A woman, more specifically a widow. A woman who, though formerly married, now has lost her husband. He is dead and gone. We can deduce from how the parable unfolds that she has no other family. Because in the Hebrew culture, if you were a woman, then you would be represented in legal terms by whichever man you were connected to most closely. So if you were married to a, a husband, then your husband would represent you in a legal sphere. If you had no husband or your husband had passed away, then your father would represent you or your eldest son would represent you. And this woman apparently has no representative. She is a widow in the most true sense of the word and that she has no earthly protection left. She needs desperately to be advocated for. And so something has gone wrong in her life. Some great injustice has been committed against her. And she is going to this earthly judge and begging him, asking him to do his job well, to stand in her steed and represent her with justice, to avenge the one that has done wrong against her. She's quite alone. She is desperate for help. We do not know much about the widow's plea. All we know is that it was serious. It wasn't some small, trivial thing. Otherwise, she probably would not have persisted in it. And she uses the word avenge me, meaning that it is not a revenge situation. It is not that she was offended or that she wants an advantage. Rather, it is that justice has been broken and she needs things put right in her life. We do know that by other scriptures such as Exodus 22, 22 through 24, Isaiah 1, 17, Deuteronomy 24:17, that God had a heart for the, the weakest of the people. He had a heart for these widows. And he called his followers to love widows as he loved them, to protect them and provide for their needs and to go out of their way to make sure that they would not be overlooked or forsaken. Now the secular judge initially refuses to do anything about this woman's case. He's got better things to do with his time. He's got more important issues. And so he completely overlooks her. He treats her as if she's not even there. That ignorance doesn't last very long, though. Even though this man had no fear of God, he wasn't worried about what God had demanded of him. So he wasn't worried that if he didn't give just to this woman that he'd, he'd be punished by God because he didn't fear God. He had no regard for man, so he didn't think, well, if I, if I don't take care of this woman's case, then people will grumble about my position and I won't be elected back or they'll remove me. He didn't care about the ideas of man. That wasn't what motivated him. What motivates him to change heart and to stop ignoring her is that she was a persistent woman, that she cared so much about her cause, that she continued day after day after day to seek out his help, to get some kind of response from him, to have, her stand, to have him stand in her place when it came to justice. Day after day, the woman returned and the same plea was on her lips. Give me, uh, avenge me for this injustice that is done against me. And so while the judge was not a righteous man, though he was self-centered and lived for himself, 
He is impacted by her persistence to such a degree that he eventually buckles and says, fine, I will help you. I will meet your needs. Why? Because he cannot endure her anymore. <clears throat> the scripture literally says, literally says, lest you blacken my eye. She was beating him up with her requests. And it wasn't as if she was physically violent towards him. But it was as if every day hearing the same request from her again and again was beginning to weaken his resolve. He could not be stubborn and wicked against her anymore. He had to do something about this because it was wearing him out. And so the earthly judge is a picture of the person who does the right thing for the wrong reasons. He does the right thing not because he is a righteous man or because he cares about what is right. He does the right thing because he's annoyed by this woman who demands the right thing. He is an example of someone who does the right thing for the wrong reasons. How much more so will God do the right thing for the right reasons? The right thing would be to supply a just answer to this sincerely prayerful widow. This is an example of an a fortiori argument. In logic, this means we go from a weaker example to a stronger example, and it strengthens our case. This weak example of a worldly judge who does the right thing only makes it clear that God, who is a righteous and a godly and a selfless judge, will all the more do the right thing and respond to the pleas of those who consistently come to him seeking truth and seeking to be avenged. <clears throat> now, Jesus is not saying that God is like the selfish judge in any way. The force of the illustration is the surprising way that Jesus compares the righteous judge with this ungodly one who has no business being in the same category. But I think inevitably the parable does cause us to answer some uncomfortable questions about how these two judges are connected. The secular judge refused to help this woman. Why? Because he was selfish, because he had a cold heart towards his neighbors. He was not a good judge in any stretch of the word. But for those of us who have found ourselves in a position similar to that widow, <clears throat> for those of us who have come before the real judge, the good judge, God, before the throne of God above with a plea for justice, with a request that God supply our need for something good, and yet our requests have been met with silence, we find ourselves wondering, why would God, the good judge, hold back from us the thing that we request? So many of us here have had a struggle waiting on the Lord. We need to be taught to understand what it means to endure through unanswered prayer. We have prayed that prayer. God, <clears throat> the sickness that has come over me, it is afflicting me, it is wearing me out. I want to serve you. I want to do a good job raising my children. I want to be able to do my job at work well. God, please heal me. And yet the sickness persists. Maybe the sickness gets worse. Healing is not even on the horizon for us. Others have, pr have prayed to the Lord God, please provide for my needs. I... I I'm desperate here. I cannot give myself what I need. Lord, please step in and intervene. 
And sometimes, even as we pray those things, something else is taken away from us. Some other roadblock keeps us from getting a job or from providing for our own needs. And so that prayer seems unanswered to us. We might pray to the Lord God, please help me to understand God. It is so confusing to me. This concept, I don't know how this idea is supposed to instruct me, Lord God. What do, what do I believe about this topic that you've put before me? Give me understanding. I, there's got to be a way to know this, to understand it, to make it clear, God. And yet we still stumble through the darkness wondering without answers, not knowing why. Please help me overcome this addiction, Lord. Keep me from being a prisoner. I want to be free for you, Lord. Help me, help me to say no to these temptations <clears throat> that have so wrecked my life. Please help me to forgive this individual that has hurt me so much. I don't want to carry this grudge anymore. Please, Lord God. Maybe this is the hardest prayer that is not answered. Please, God, bring salvation to that one that I love. Please, God, open their eyes and help them know the grace that I have come to know. I don't want to be separated from them forever. I don't want them to not know you. I don't want them to be a rebel to you forever. God, intervene, Lord. Please soften their heart and save them. These questions, if left unanswered, can corrode our understanding of God. They can make us wonder about God's power. Is God really mighty to save or is justice beyond His reach? I have asked so many times. God has not yet answered. Does that mean He cannot? Perhaps that question doesn't spring up in your own mind. Perhaps it's put there by somebody else. Why do you keep praying to your God when He has not answered you? If these unanswered prayers, if we are not prepared for this, if we are not trained to wait on the Lord rightly, then we can begin to question whether God has the strength to actually answer our prayers as they need to be answered. They might have us question His concern for our well-being. Does this God love us enough to answer the prayer that we have been lifting up to Him? If He does care for me, why is He so silent? Why have I not seen a response that I, I can clearly identify as an answer to that prayer that I have been lifting up again and again? And eventually, if, if these go on long enough and we do not know that a God that, that, that is holy and sovereign is a God worth waiting for, then we might even begin to question the existence of that God. Is He even there? Am I praying off into the nothing of space? Or am I actually speaking to a being who is real, who is not an idea, but a personal God, does He even exist? The first detail that should shine light as to why some prayers are unanswered is found in verse 7 of our text today. The scripture says, And shall God not avenge His own elect who cry out day and night to Him, though he bears long with them. See, the condition of answered prayer are clearly directed towards the elect of God, the ones that God has chosen for himself. God has no obligation to answer the prayers of those who have no faith in him. Do we understand that, church? God does not have to answer the prayers of those who have no regard for him, 
who do not trust in Him, who have not turned their life over to Him and allowed Him to be Lord. John chapter 9, verse 31 explains this very clearly to us. It says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears Him. So this does not mean that God is ignorant or dumb to things that sinners say. It's not that He cannot hear it, that it is not loud enough for Him to discern, but it is because He has no obligation to receive the request of somebody who is not His. Don't forget, church, that before we trust in Jesus Christ, where is our standing before God? Who are we before God? We are creatures of wrath before Him. When we have not Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we stand before Him as offenders to the crown of God. We have broken His law. We have rebelled against this kingdom that we've been talking about so clearly over the last two weeks. And so God has no obligation to hear the request of a rebel who's trying to topple His kingdom, who is trying to, to push Him off the throne. He doesn't have to respond to one who is without faith. In fact, we see from other passages as we've read through and watched Jesus work among the masses in Judea and Galilee when He heals. What does He say to these people who come to Him for healing? He says, Go, your faith has made you well. So Jesus is healing those who trust in God, those who are worshipers of Yahweh, who do not see God just as this concept or this idea or perhaps as a resource they might tap into, but instead they see God as their creator, as the sovereign king over all that is good and the one who rightfully divides what is evil and what is righteous. So God listens to and hears the, the prayers of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. The way this text is very commonly received is this. Most people read this passage of Scripture and they think, I need to know what I need to do to get my prayers answered from God. After reading the parable, the answer seems to be, well, pray persistently. Just pray more and God will give you what you need. But before we can do anything to help our prayers be answered, God has to do something first, doesn't He? Before we can do anything to help our prayers be heard by God, he must come into this life of sin that we've been living. <clears throat> he must interrupt our rebellion. He must soften our hardened hearts. He must open our eyes so that we can have a relationship with Him. Before we ask, what should I do so that God will answer my prayers, we should ask, what has God done so that my prayers might even be heard by Him? <clears throat> Friends, we are tremendously blessed that God sent His only begotten Son to live a life that was completely free of sin, that was perfect, was the greatest example we've ever seen of trusting the Lord God, that was righteous in every detail. And then to have that life of perfection that should have been exalted and, 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 and praised forever, letting that perfect life be crushed on the cross for us so that He might take the shame that we deserve so that He might take the wrath that we had earned. Jesus went upon the cross for us. And in doing so, He brought us away from the camp of the rebels and brought us into the family of the saints. 
When we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He makes us brand new. And now the relationship between us and God has changed forever. God is no longer looking upon us with wrath when Christ is ours. Now He sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. And now He desires to hear from us. He wants to interact with us in prayer. He wants us to seek Him out and to lay before Him every need because we have been saved by His Son, Jesus. The gospel should be understood as the foundation for our confident expectation that our God will answer our prayers. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, meaning that He has left the heavenly places to come and take on flesh and live with us, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. This perfect Christ owed nothing to God. So when He went and paid the penalty of death on the cross, He was paying not for His own sin, but for ours. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why is it possible for us to come boldly before the, the Lord's throne? It's possible because we have this great high priest, this mediator, this one who stands between us and God and makes it possible for us to know Him and to be known by Him. It is only because of what Christ has done that we can even hope to speak to the Lord God. Apart from Christ, one should expect almost nothing from prayer except, of course, the prayer of a repentant, confessing heart that for the first time says, Lord God, I recognize I am a sinner. I confess before you today that apart from you I have no hope. I need you Jesus, please take my broken life. I surrender myself to you. Make me yours. The first prayer that God receives and responds to is that prayer of repentance when we confess to the Lord God that He alone is Lord. Jesus died for our sin that our prayers might be answered. Have you ever wondered why all of our prayers are prayed in Jesus' name? Have you thought about that? Why do we close and we pray these things in the fantastic name of Jesus Christ, our Savior? We pray it in His name because if it wasn't for the name of Jesus, we could not pray. We would have no right to stand before God and enter into counsel with Him. Now, many people recently have tried to convince us that the word Jesus, when you say it, has some kind of a magical property that even detached from God, if you use it like a tool and just say, in the name of Jesus, you'll get what you want. But that's not what the Scripture is telling us. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we pray because it is the name of Jesus that saves us and makes it possible for us to even enter into prayer with Him in the first place. And so we pray in His name because He is the one who made it possible for our prayers to be heard by our God. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one mediator, one God, between, uh, one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He can advocate to the Father on our behalf. And He has secured a resolution through His own blood that satisfies God's need for justice and at the same time has saved us from paying for the painful wage of sin ourselves. If you have not trusted in Jesus, I, I 
urge you to consider. If you want your prayers to be heard, you must know Christ. That is the only way you can have access to Him. You don't have to earn that access through your own deeds. You don't have to strive or go to church X amount of times before God will hear your prayer. You need Christ and you can have Him today. God has no obligation to answer the prayers of those who have no faith in Him. However, for those who do believe, God will surely answer and will only give good things in response to our prayers. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 through 11, talks about God's desire to give good things to us. Jesus preaches and says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, ouch, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? A priori argument from the lesser to the greater. Since people who are not righteous know how to do things the right way in certain areas of life, won't God know how to do things the right way better than we do? Now we do have to ask the question, will God give us anything that we ask for? Is this a blank check, friends? Can we get whatever we simply ask for in the name of Jesus? That is why the full counsel of Scripture is so important to us. We cannot take one Scripture and just grab that one scripture and say, I'm going to ignore everything else. I'm just going to hold this up as my banner. This is what I believe. This is what I live by. We must let the word in its totality teach us what to think about everything, including prayer. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Did you catch that? If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Just moments ago as we prayed for our Haiti team, Charlie, for just a second, began speaking into the mic and he said, I just ask that as you pray for us, pray that God's will be done. That whatever He wants to have happen in our team will happen in our team. And that's because Charlie is aware of what's going on here 1 John 5, 14 through 15, that God is pleased to give us what is best for us. But if we do not ask according to His will, if we don't ask for the things that He wants, then we can't expect Him to give us something that's not going to be what is best for us. He will give us justice. This does not mean that He will give us whatever we want. He will give us what is right and what is true. The woman in the parable is not asking for a selfish, wicked thing. She's not requesting a senseless, frivolous thing. She's asking for justice. The problem is not always that God doesn't answer. It's that He will frequently answer us in a way that we do not want Him to answer us. We go into prayer with an expectation of this is how I want this all to go. And if it doesn't go the way I hope it goes, then this prayer will have been a failure. Is that the right attitude to have as we seek the throne of God? That I'm going, to get, I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to do all that I can do to convince God to follow my plan. 
is not the right strategy for prayer, friends. The problem is not always that God doesn't answer. It's that He will frequently answer us in a way that we do not want Him to answer. And then we find ourselves dissatisfied because we're not seeking what God wants for us. This is really critical. I think it's absolutely important to push back against the disparaging doctrines that are taught today that in order to get what you want from God, you simply have to pray the right formula. That if you want to manipulate God effectively, then you've just got to follow these five simple steps and then God will have no choice but to yield to your will and give you the thing that you want. Friends, this is a doctrine from hell. Prayer must not be understood that way. We come here to worship a God who is above us and who has authority over us. And the fact that we get to come to Him is a grace that is given to us that is not deserved. It would be, it would be horrendously proud of us to come before God and insist that He is wrong about what is best for us and to insist that He gives us what we believe is right for us. There is no faith in that prayer, is there? That is not a, pray, a prayer that trusts in God. Especially in the light of the purpose of the parable being to prevent us from losing heart, friends. We don't want to lose heart. And one of the ways that people are losing heart throughout the world today is they're learning the wrong things about Scripture. They are believing lies about God's Word. And then when God doesn't act the way that these fakers pretend that God should act, they're disappointed. And then, of course, they don't believe that God because that's not a real God that's being preached. The real God of Scripture is a God of power, a God of authority, a God who deserves honor and glory and praise. And that is also a real God of mercy and grace who condescends and comes to be with us, to live in our lowly state so that He can bring us near to Himself. He is just and loving at the same time. We must not try to circumvent His authority so that we get the things that we want. There is a divine order to what we must believe. Faith that God is, that He exists and is real. Faith that He is powerful. Faith that He is good. All of this must come before we sort out our expectations about prayer and what it can accomplish in our lives. Here's the wrong order. Many people have this mindset about God. They say, do this for me, God, and I will believe in you. Let's make a deal, Lord. If you accomplish these things in my life, that will prove to me that you're real, and I will follow you. I will love you. I will commit myself to you. And I say to that, no, you won't. No, you won't. If God is to us only what we can get from Him, then this is not a love relationship, is it? This is not a God that we really love. This is a God we simply see as our way out. It is a God who we see as our ticket to a better life. But God is not a ticket. He is a personal being. We must love Him first. Here's another wrong way of thinking about this. Oh, I believed in you, God, but now because you let me down and didn't give me the things that I wanted in a prayer, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. I'm not going to believe in you. Well, the chances are, if that's really the posture of our heart, I think some of us go through that time. For a moment, we might think that way when our heart gets off track. 
We might think, I, I don't think I can believe in God. Or, man, I, I, I'm stumbling. But if, you, if the Holy Spirit is really in you, you won't persist in that thought pattern. You won't be able to think that way. Because if you truly believed in God, then you would know that He is much bigger than whatever small circumstance faces you today. Whatever thing you're lacking right now, He is greater than that thing. And your faith in Him must transcend your circumstances and the things that surround your life. God hears and He answers the believer. And we must put our faith in Him first before we establish the ways that we are to go about seeking Him in prayer. Verse 7 indicates that God hears and responds to those who cry out to Him day and night. The answer of the prayer seems to hinge here on the persistence of the prayer. That the person would not give up and cease their petition indicates real faith in that individual. Faith that is not conditional. Faith that endures to the end. That's not an if-then faith. If you do this, God, then I will have faith in you. It is a faith that says, you're real. How can I not trust in you, God? There is no one greater than you. Verse 8 tells us that God will avenge them speedily. Now, this is difficult. The justice that God brings will not come too late, but we must understand what we learn in 2 Peter 3, 8, that for the, the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And to Him, a thousand years is like a day. So when he says he will come speedily, that does not mean that he will answer you within a 24-hour period. I love those friends of mine that I can call them. I know they're going to get back to me within 24 hours. I send them a message within 24 hours. They're back to me. I like that, right? Because I like to be in control of my life. I like to be able to move on. But when we interact with our God, who's in control of our life? He's in control of our life. So he says, come to me consistently. This this fact that He will act speedily does not mean that He'll give it to you within 24 hours. It means that it will not happen too late. It'll happen when it needs to happen, according to God's economy, not according to ours. In this parable, the earthly judge's change of heart is not nobly motivated. We know that this earthly judge just simply wanted to relieve the pressure that had been put on him by this, uh, this woman who was so persistent in her prayers. He just wanted relief from her. But we contrast this to God can you wear him out? Is that the way we're looking at our prayers to God? Is this us beating him up, as that Greek word talked about, how giving him a black eye? Is that why he's responding? No, it's different. It's not the same that it was for that earthly judge. It is better. God desires our presence. We do not wear him out. He wants us to be near to him. And he rejoices in our dependence upon him. He loves to provide for our needs. If you're a mother or a father, few things have given you joy in this world, such as being able to be there for your kid when they needed you the most. Few things make you feel like you are fulfilling your calling in life than to be able to have that son or daughter come to you in their hardest moment and say, I need your wisdom. I need you. Mom, I need you. Dad, help me. It is your joy in that moment to help them as it is the joy of the Lord to hear you come and petition to Him. He desires to have you come and to have that mindset that there is only one who can provide for you what you need and that one is Christ. The ending of the parable seems strange to us. Verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? It's only weird if we have done what so many people do and divorce this passage on prayer from the teachings of the kingdom that came before it. 
Remember, friends, this is all happening in the context of praying for the return of Jesus Christ. That if our faith is truly in Him, then the biggest concern in our mind is not our sickness. It's not our bank account. It is not the circumstances that surround our lives. It is Him, and it is His return. And so may our faithful prayer to God be bigger than just simply, God, make life better. May it be, God, I need you. Come quickly, Lord. Be here with me now in the present kingdom, but also bring your kingdom to come. I cannot wait for it to arrive. As we close, I want to share one little detail I came across in my studies that really put a smile on my face. If you're looking at the Greek words, sometimes you can learn some things that help you understand concepts better. And so I want us to just end by taking a second to look at this Greek word that is used in in this parable uh, that represents the word pray. The word for pray, particularly uh, in this passage of Scripture, is prosuxesthai. Prosuxesthai. And it's from two different Greek words. The first one is pro, which means towards or to exchange. The the second word is uxomai, which means a wish or a hope or a desire. Do you know what prayer literally is? It is an exchange of wishes. To pray literally means to interact with the Lord by switching our human wishes, our desires, our hopes and dreams for His wishes for us. His hopes and His dreams for us. This is divine persuasion at its most powerful. When you come before the Lord God and you taste and see that He is good, then the prayer that you ask for again and again and again, you begin to see that if God doesn't want that for you, there must be something better that He wants. And that heart that is so troubled and anxious for a reply begins to see. And that interaction with a God who is so faithful and is so willing to endure for us as long as it takes, that God's will must be best. And we exchange our will for the will He has for us. Pray, friends. There is so much power in prayer. And it's not just to make the world what you want it to be. It's to make your heart what God wants it to be. We're going to, uh, to close with a word of prayer today. And then we're going to sing a song together. If you are a member here at First Family Church, we have a brief members meeting for you. It's only going to last about 10 or 15 minutes. We got done a little earlier today so that we have time for that. And we hope that you'll stick around and just spend a few minutes for, uh, uh, for discussion. We're going to talk about our membership role. And we have uh, an issue in the church we want to bring to your attention. We want to talk about if you are not a member of the church, but you call this your church home and you, you've been uh, faithfully serving or faithfully praising God here with us. We're very grateful for you. We, we hope that you would become a member of the church eventually and, and be able to be a part of the voting that goes on here and things like that. But as this song is sung, this last song, if you're not a member, uh, you'll be dismissed to go. And if you are a member, we would urge you to stick around just for about 10 or 15 minutes afterwards so we can talk to you about some, some things that have to do with the church. All right? Let's bow our heads in prayer. The team's going to come up and we're going to sing one song together and, uh, and then we'll begin our business meeting. God, thank you so much for the truth of this scripture which has been revealed to us. And it is not always easy. And I don't know that I've made it easy today to come before you and pray and to pray and to pray and to not have that prayer answered. Lord, some of this is just difficult because we are limited temporal beings that live within the confines of time and you are not. 
And so it's going to be tough for us sometimes, Lord, to do things on your schedule. But Lord, more than anything, I just ask that as we have examined this parable that we would learn that you are greater than any judge, that you are perfectly just, that you will not ignore us, that truth will be done to your glory. I pray also that as we read of this, Father, that we would be inspired by this widow who did not give up but consistently did what little she could do and went to the source. Father God, you are the one that we can come to every day and please forgive us for not taking advantage of that freedom that has been won for us at such great a cost. I ask, Lord, that we would be spending more and more time seeking your throne, Lord, and exchanging our wishes for yours. Let us desire what you desire for us, Lord God. Make us happy with what you have given. We want to be content in all things because you are the Lord of all things. And so, God, we trust in you today. Thank you for listening to us, and we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.